What is the meaning of life? If, if, if someone was to ask that question, what is the meaning of life? It's a very simple question to start the morning out. If you don't have your coffee, you won't be ready for it. Uh, I think if you poll a thousand people, you get a thousand responses, but generally they could probably be categorized and lumped into some categories of uh, like family or friendships or experiences or freedom. Um, if, uh, if, if, if you follow Jesus, you might say living the new life that we have in Jesus. Now, there's an answer to the question of the meaning of life that we might have, but what we really believe about the meaning of life is what we live for. So maybe a better, more personal question is, what do you live for? Because what we believe life is for, that's what we give our all to. That's what we give to. That's, that's what we spend our lives towards. It's what we orientate our lives around. So what we live for is what we give our all to. So if we live for freedom... That can look like lots of different kinds of things. It could look like a career-focused yuppie. It could look like a bohemian hippie, both of which are going to take different paths to freedom, and both of which are going to require different kinds of sacrifices to get there. And if any of those types of people are in the church, both of them will use the church for their own ends of freedom. So a church or a career or whatever, these are all kind of secondary to what they're giving their all to. They're sacrificing for freedom. Now, if that, that kind of, of uh, life orientation is a bit self-centered. The, the yuppie and the hippie will both use the church for their own ends. Um, and they'll ask you, the, the church will only be as good as answering the question of what does it do for me? What does it do for my freedom? You see, both can be religious on the outside and actually not care very much for Jesus and his church. It turns Jesus into a mean for our own ends. So the question um, about the purpose of life we can pontificate and we can have these theories, but the question of what do you live for? Like, what does your life actually illustrate what you live for? That's something else. That's where the rubber meets the road. And by ourselves, I think the problem is we really miss um, what's worth giving our all to. If we're going to give our all to something, that's got to be the most expensive thing in the world. Like, it really better be worth it. And by ourselves, we're not really good at figuring out what's worth it and what's not. And Jesus wants us to embrace all of life as he's intended. He wants us to give us our all, but to that which is deserving of our all. He wants us to spend ourselves well, is maybe another way of putting it. The best thing we could live for, the most beautiful way to live, is a life for Jesus. He's the end goal, and he's also the way. He helps us get there. In this story that we have, um, actually two stories here, we have two examples of people giving their all, a woman to Jesus and Jesus to us. What we're going to learn as we go through uh, this section of Mark 14 is Jesus gives his all to us, and that frees us to live a life of beauty, live a life of following him, where we get to give our all to him. But first, um, we have this story about uh, where someone gives their all to Jesus. So um, we're going to look at the first 11 verses in Mark to begin with. And um, what we're going to see are three main players. So we have Jesus, but then we have like kind of three main actors or groups of actors. One is the woman who's characterized by love, which is like an artist. Second is Judas, who's characterized by hate. I'm going to define as the terrorist. And then you have the disciples who are characterized by pride, which are the snobs. The disciples, by the way, always a stand-in for the church. So if you're like, oh, I wonder which one I am, you're probably a snob. We all are. So I'm just going to get there immediately. But let's, uh, before, before we get ahead of ourselves, let's talk about the woman first. First, okay, so Jesus finds himself at a leper's house, which is, I mean, to begin with, that's kind of a crazy thing. A leper's house, you're Jewish, it's not a place you go. 
Jesus is always going to the outcast places. He's never going to the comfortable places. Um, and a woman takes out a perfume jar. This perfume jar would have been um, in clay, and the only way to get to the perfume would have been to break it. So it's like a one-time use kind of thing. And uh, these perfume jars were often um, quite expensive, and they'd be used for inheritance kind of stuff or like how we would use as retirement. And so this is a woman who uh, sees is using what could most likely be all or at least a good portion of her retirement on Jesus in this story that we have here. It's costly. I mean, literally costly. And also, it's costly for her reputation. What does she get for it? She gets a bunch of flack from all the men in the room. Like, what are you doing with your life? Um, all this perfume on Jesus is like, this is going a little bit overboard. You're going, this is a little bit too extravagant. Uh, and, and actually, it would have been a little bit overboard. All that perfume spent on one person, it would have made the air thick. It would have been um, like difficult to breathe even. So that's the woman here. This is like the woman's act. And Jesus calls it beautiful, which is amazing. I want things in my life to be called beautiful by Jesus. Now, let's, let's look at the, dis- the disciples, though. How would the disciples respond? Well, according to Jesus, the disciples are clueless. They don't understand what the woman's doing. And they basically use this extravagant act of worship uh, as uh, an opportunity to harshly rebuke somebody. So they see an act of worship as a rebukable offense. Way to go, church. It's kind of what we're good at. Um, now, did I, I actually, I wonder in reading this, did these disciples really care about the poor or was it just an, an opportunity to kind of put a woman in her place? It's kind of hard to read that, not read that into it. Now, Judas, he goes a step further. His immediate response is like, I'm going to kill a man. So he leaves and just decides to betray Jesus for um, some silver. He goes out to betray the one. He's been following for years, by the way. He's not like some random guy on the street. This is someone who he has lived with and has done um, ministry with for, for a long period of time with. And then we have Jesus. So how does Jesus kind of um, interact in, uh, in this situation? According to Jesus, this unnamed woman, you don't have her name at all in here, she totally gets it. And the disciples, all of which we can name today, those guys are clueless. According to Jesus, she gets the gravity of Jesus' words when he says, I'm going to be killed. He, Jesus, up until this time, three times has already said, I'm going to be killed, I'm going to be killed, I'm going to be killed. The disciples are kind of like, okay, I don't really understand, and let's move on to the next subject. Or, can we talk about how amazing, and, uh, how amazing I am? Uh, but this woman actually gets it. And uh, Jesus is, is um, bringing that to, uh, to light. He's, he's celebrating that. And this is also, Jesus would be upsetting gender norms, by the way, at this point, like, because this is not something that you would do, especially in this time. Um, you, you would not side with female over male kind of situation, but Jesus doesn't care about that. He says, her act will always be told. And by preaching today, we're making that true. We continue to make that true. Anytime someone preaches through Mark 14 or wherever else this is in the other gospels, um, we continue to honor her memory of what she's done. And what we have here is one person engages in an act of worship of which Jesus affirms, and he calls it beautiful. He doesn't say correct. He doesn't say what she's done is right. He doesn't say what she's done is merciful. He doesn't say what she's done is, is uh, the, the right thing to do. All those things are true. He, he, but what he says is beautiful. And that polarizes the group. The best this group has is a group of religious people rebuking her. No. <laughs> Uh, 
the best that, that she can offer is, is this group of religious people rebuking her. Or um, the worst that this group has is someone who's going out now set on murdering somebody. I think one of the things we can learn, there's so many things we can learn from here. Um, but one of the things we can learn from here is that worship is inherently wasteful. Like, what are we actually doing when we worship? How many times uh, have, you know, you tried to describe what the church is about to someone who doesn't get what the church is about, and they are like, why do you spend time, like, wor- like singing and praying? Couldn't you just do something better, like serve the poor or something like that? Um, now, often when people say that in a very cynical way, they're actually not concerned about serving the poor, just like the disciples aren't very concerned about serving the poor. But they see what we're doing as a, as a waste. It's not, it's not pragmatic enough for them. In a pragmatic world, worship is a waste. We could be doing something more. We could be doing something more productive, in air quotes. But we can't do anything beautiful unless it's costly, unless it's wasteful. It requires a level of waste. And artists know this. Much of their time is spent working away. Much of an artist's time is spent um, wasted, as in nobody will see it, but it's a work towards something, a work towards something that's, um, that's beautiful. As uh, one example, I mean, painting is, is a perfect example of like how wasteful real art can be. Um, some say the greatest masterpiece in Western painting is Rembrandt's Night Watch, which is kind of represented over there. Um, <laughs> the, um, uh, it's a massive painting, 12 feet by 14 feet. Did you guys get to see this when you went to Amsterdam? Yeah. yeah so it's like, I mean, probably as big as the thing behind me, like this, all of it. So it was commissioned in 1639. It was finished in 1642. Three years making one painting. Rembrandt spent three years making one painting. What was he doing with his time? Was he literally painting for all those three years nonstop? Okay, he probably had, you know, other commissions and things in between. Um, And he would have been working on them, but still, like, how wasteful. But if we aren't involved in the wasteful act, then... Uh, we won't be able to really participate in something that's beautiful. I mean, just think of how wasteful our God is. Why are there more colors than red? Why are there like more than five colors in the world? There's no need for it. Like, I mean, maybe there is evolutionary, biological, I don't know. Like, smarter people can tell me why there has to be like, you know, more than millions of colors. I don't think there really needs to be. Or, Or what about flavors? Why does there need to be? What's like, what's one of your favorite foods? Anybody? Pizza. Is there, why is there more flavors than pizza in the world? If we could all basically be happy with pizza, sorry, Lydia, and anyone else who can't have cheese, um, you could have the cheeseless version in our world. Uh, there, there actually doesn't really need to be any other flavor. Like, food could just be something that you have to do because if you don't do it, you die. But the fact that food is like pleasurable and enjoyable and there's all sorts of different kinds of flavors to it, that's what a wasteful, weird thing. And the more you look into, the uh, nature and, and to the, the animal world is like, actually like there's a lot of wasted goodness out there that God just has just to be there for no other reason than it exists and it's amazing. I mean, our God has wasted so much on us and I think we really would see it as a waste and, and, we, and probably generally we do. Of course, I'm using that word tongue in cheek a bit. But I think because we just live incredibly pragmatic lives. And if we feel like if something isn't have a, if it doesn't lead to a means to an end, then it's like, you know, chuck it away and let's just get to the minimalist kind of stuff. But our God has wasted so much on us. I mean, do you know what this whole world is? This, this whole world is, a, is an overflow of the love between the Trinity. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit had this infinite love, this uh, perfect connection, these 
um, uh, and uh, overwhelming uh, relationship with each other. And it was out of that overwhelming love that this world was created. It was that overwhelming love that God put us here to be able to um, experience that. The reason why we're here is because he wants us to know what that overwhelming love is like. There's just so much of it. It's, it's an overflow. It's a waste. And out of the overflow of the love and the Trinity, we were created. And in this world that we experience, the Psalms tell us that uh, uh, the world we get to live in is a theater in which to experience the beauty and glory of God. Like this is a beautiful world that we get to live in. And it's inherently wasteful. So I think Jesus wants us to get the most out of this kind of life, this kind of the beauty that we can have in our lives. And when he sees people doing that, as he does with this woman, he celebrates it. So I would love for Jesus to look at something that I did. I would love for Jesus to look at my life and to say what he has done is beautiful. What he is is beautiful. What, what he's about is something that's beautiful. Wouldn't that be amazing to hear that from Jesus? And what does a, beauty of life, a life of beauty require? Well, let's... Um, take just four uh, maybe lessons from this woman. First, it's costly. It's literally costly. Um, for this woman and for us, sometimes it, it actually does literally cost us money. Sometimes it's more than that, and it costs us time, or it costs us energy, or affections, and love for people. Also, it's costly to your reputation. You will get flack for following Jesus, for living a life of beauty. It's going to be costly to what others think of you. Because this is an act of you giving your all to something. And that's going to you know, offend people. It's going to put people into different camps. So it's costly. It also takes time. Nothing beautiful ever came out of a microwave oven. That's not why it's there. It's there for quick food. And that's fine. I, Michael Buckley doesn't believe in micro, microwave ovens. But I could not live without one. That's fine. Um, but I don't use it for, to create beautiful food. I use it to eat something really quick or to heat Colin's porridge up in the morning. And that's okay for a meal, but it's not okay for our lives. So for most people in our church, I think impatience is a besetting sin. I know it is for me. I don't know if you guys struggle with that or not. Um, I think we probably do. I think here's some symptoms of not being patient. Easily discouraged, easily distracted, easily annoyed, overly tired, nothing is good enough. Did I just describe us all? <laughs> I feel like that's, and I, that's not just our church, right? That's our culture. We're kind of living that impatient kind of culture. Living in patience, though, is protesting the belief that we're in control. God is in control, so we're patient. We see where we'd like to be, and we realize that we're not there. Patience is proof that we're secure in God being in control and bringing us there. Impatience is getting really anxious that we're not there, discouraged that we're not there, or frustrated that we're not there. Patience is being like, well, God's going to work how he's going to work. And I'm not going to be lazy. I'm going to work hard, but I'm going to trust in God actually doing the work. Patience means sticking with something, even if it doesn't deliver those kind of immediate results, because you believe that God's actually going to work. He's going to show up. And patience doesn't mean lazy. Um, one should be hardworking and patient. And there are times when we should be urgent. Uh, but patience is opposed to anxiety. It's not opposed to urgency. It's not opposed to hardworking, but it is opposed to anxiety. We can be urgent and not anxious only if we're patient. So it also requires our presence. More than physically being present, of course, that's necessity, um, but mentally being present, which I think is a much more difficult to physically be in a place and not actually mentally be there. But I think this speaks to our prayer lives. It's so easy to just like repeat words and say, here's the things I'm supposed to say here and then call it a prayer. It's like, that's not really, if I was to do that with Christina, that's not really a conversation. That's, um, 
I don't know what that is, a transaction or something like that. I'm not really have prayer is a conversation between you and God. That means you have to be mentally, physically present for that. I think the same thing for, um, for community. We can be physically present in our community, but to be actually like present with the people mentally, like to be um, curious about how they're doing, for them to be curious about how you're doing, like that kind of um, the interaction that's supposed to go in our missional communities. Um, uh, that that's uh, a life of beauty is going to require our presence in those kind of ways. And if we're not experiencing that, what we have is a deficient experience of the church. If we don't have these kind of costly, wasteful worship aspects. And last of all, and most importantly, it must be motivated by love because you don't spend money on something that you don't love. You don't give yourself to something that you don't love. Or you might for a time if you don't love it, but eventually, you know, it'll become an empty religious ritual or something. What we want to do is, is love the thing that we're spending our time on. And without love for something, we're never going to be able to live this way. So, um, I get this? There we go. Motivated by love. So, um, wasteful worship is costly. It takes time, requires our presence, and is motivated by love. So now, um, I hope that we all feel a problem because we're told how to live. So the ending of the sermon is like, therefore, be like this woman, like, Okay, so I should be motivated for love. Okay, let me work up my motivation for love. How do we do that? It, we're, we're really bad at that. How, how, do we, how can we do these things? We've tried to do these things. It's not like we haven't tried these things. We, we try them, and they're very difficult. Why is that? Because in ourselves, by ourselves, we can't do it ourselves. So our problem is that we have other loves, and these other loves are more important, and so they get our time. They're worth the cost. And then we're doomed to live a life that is less than beautiful. And Jesus doesn't want us to live like that. He wants to save us from that. And so this is why Jesus is making a big deal about his death. Uh, and, and so we're going to look at this next story here in verses 12 through 26. So this woman anoints Jesus for his death um, like in, ahead, time, ahead of time of his burial. And then verse 12 through 26 is basically Jesus talking about his death. And what we learn from that is how Jesus gave his all to us. <coughs> so about how Jesus gave his all to us. And the only way we can live a beautiful life, one where we give our all to Jesus, isn't if we're really smart, isn't if we're really passionate, isn't if we try really hard, is only because, if, only because Jesus gives his all to us. It's the only, the only hope we have. Um, and what I love is the, um, <laughs> the beginning of this kind of Last Supper section is Jesus is kind of being Jesus, doing things that only Jesus can. He's like, you're going to go to this town. There's going to be a guy carrying this water, and you're going to talk to him. He's going to say this. Like, who does that? Like, that's not a human thing. That's a God thing. It's just like, such a weird thing that it's just kind of thrown in. The disciples are like, oh, yeah, okay, cool. We're used to this at this point. Like, weird stuff, Jesus. Um, now, two, uh, a couple, um, two main things I want to hone in on here. Um, first is uh, the betrayal that's going on here at the Last Supper. Now, notice this isn't a good versus evil kind of struggle. It's not like you have Judas versus Jesus or the religious leaders versus, or it's not like equally matched what's going on. Like Jesus has already planned to die. He's said that multiple times and before plots even became a thing. Like this, Jesus is um, surrendering himself to this process and God can be in control and Judas can be responsible for his actions. Both of those things can be true, which is what we see here. And as God often works, he reverses things. The worst that Jesus' enemies could have done to him was kill him. And so they did that. 
And, and what did God do? He used that as like the best possible thing for himself. It's kind of like there's no way to get around God doing what he's going to do. God is always going to do what he's going to do. He's always going to get the most glory. And um, he, he's always, even in his own betrayal from one of his own, he will always get the glory he deserves. So the question for like, if, if we're against him, um, we're just not going to do the things we really want to get done. <laughs> so will we be for this kind of Jesus or will we be against him? Well, and then Christ explains what it means to be for him, to be with him. He talks about the supper. So as they're eating a full meal, um, uh, let's look how Jesus explains the last supper, of which we'll be able to participate as we normally do at the end of our gatherings. Uh, he said, the bre- uh, so the bread was broken and he gave it to other disciples as a symbol of his body. Then he took the cup, uh, then they prayed and gave thanks and they all drank from it. And in verses 24 through 25, Jesus says this. He says, this is the blood of, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. We could take those verses and kind of unpack some of the things there. Um, Because we might have heard those verses a lot when communion is concerned, but some of that, it might be like, I'm not sure exactly what that means. So let's look at the blood of the covenant first. Um, So that's what Jesus calls the cup. The cup is a symbol of the promise between God and his people. It goes back to Abraham in the Old Testament, uh, where God made a deal with his people. He said, here's my deal. I'll rescue you and I'll pay the price. Will you accept those terms? And Every idiot in the room said, yes, because that's the best thing I could possibly hear. If I go and buy a car, the dealer doesn't say, I'll give you the car and I'll give you the money. Uh, Okay, yeah, that sounds great. Um, That dealer wouldn't stay around for a long time, but this is how God works. I'm going to give you something amazing and I will pay the price. So Jesus' blood was that price that was paid, which is why he's surrendering to death. Paid in full. Notice how our actions are not necessary for any of this to be done. This is what God does. And it's poured out for many. This cup is poured out for many. So it's not just for the disciples and not just for us here in this room, but for many. And we want more people out there in here. I mean, if you can, oh, we, we're too high to be able to like, look and see people on the streets. We want more people out there in here. We have these empty seats. We want them to be filled with more people hearing about Jesus, singing about Jesus, praying to Jesus. How amazing would that be? We want people that you already care deeply about to experience a life of beauty. Jesus has called people to himself. There are people that Jesus has died for here in Charlton that the way, the method that God is going to use to bring them to himself is our church. How amazing is that? It might be you. That's amazing. I, I, I don't know what else better to live for. Now, we don't know who those people are. That's not our job. God knows who they are. Our job is just to talk about this love with everybody. So let's make sure we kind of realize that as we go about our day. Like that's that's a very real reality, if I could say real reality. I guess in the world of fake news, you have to separate, you know, what's fake reality and real reality. Um, Also, the Last Supper takes place over the celebration of the Passover. And this is a a detail that we shouldn't miss. Um, the Passover was a, a really big kind of family feast. Like, um, I mean, you've seen like the Da Vinci painting of everybody sitting around the table. And strangely, they're all sitting on one side. Um, but uh, God's people, uh, what happened with, with Passover, here's a little background if you're not familiar with it. God's people were slaves in a land that wasn't their own. <coughs> um, and in order to free his people, God sent plagues to the Egyptians. Like the Nile turned the blood, 
locusts came and destroyed crops, all sorts of horrible things like flies in their faces and everything. The Egyptians were stubborn though and they wouldn't release God's people from slavery. So the last plague that God sent was the death of the firstborn of all the Egyptians. Now the way that God's people were going to be um, saved from that plague was uh, to kill a lamb and put its blood over the doorpost and the lamb's death would take the place of their firstborn instead. Now, if this sounds familiar to how Jesus is talking a lot about his death, this exchange kind of thing. Now, Jesus isn't modeling his death after the Passover. It's the other way around. The reason why the Passover existed, the reason why God told God's people to do that in the way they did was because it was a shadow of what Jesus was going to do. Because as amazing as it is to bring people, like a whole people group out of slavery, um, out of bondage into their own land, that's nothing compared to what God was going to do through Jesus. And so that the spreading the blood over the doorposts, um, the fact that the blood itself is the substitute for our own, that tells us more than what happened you know, thousands of years ago in a historical situation in Egypt. It tells us what's happening in our lives today as we follow him. So because God, in wanting to free his people from their slavery, would have to send his firstborn to die. And this firstborn's death means freedom in the largest possible definition. So Jesus' death takes the place of ours. For everyone who follows Jesus, have you ever realized that you actually won't experience death the way Jesus did? Jesus experienced a death that you will never have to experience. We, we will die, yes, but we're not going to die, die. <laughs> we die, and then we're with him. That's something that even Jesus didn't experience first because he, he paid our penalty. He paid the wrath. We don't experience that. So when Jesus says, I will not drink again until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God, you must be like, what? what are you talking about, God? Basically, until the new heavens and earth come about, Jesus will abstain from feasting because feast is a celebration. It's a celebration of something completed, of something finished. And Jesus is waiting for all things to be made new as we are waiting in our lives because we know not everything's new. And we know, like we yearn for so many things to be made new and they're not yet new, but one day they're going to be. And these small little meals that we participate in now, um, they anticipate something much bigger, what the Bible pictures as a great, never-ending feast. Basically, like what, uh, my favorite description of what the new heavens and earth is, is like this infinitely never-ending party where people are eating food all the time. That sounds great. Like, bring it on. Um, and and there's like one of the pictures of what, what it's supposed to be. And the reason why people are eating is they're celebrating the marriage of God's people to the Son. Not a literal marriage where we're like now have all strange like Jesus wedding rings or something like that, but a, a bringing together of two things that were kept apart for so long. It's like the worst long distance relationship that has ever existed now is finally together in one. And for that, you have to throw a feast. You have to eat some really good food. You have to have some really good wine for something like that. It's a massive party. So if you think that new world's going to be boring where we're like playing harps and clouds and things like that, you just haven't read the Bible. Like this is our future. We get to have fun with it. That's what we're headed for. So if that's, if that's true, if that's where we're going, that should alter our present. It should alter how we live today. As the church, we live as on the eve on our wedding night. I was excited. We, we had a big dinner, things like that. I mean, uh, you're anticipating like the best possible thing that you can think of in your head before you get married. There's fun to be had. Like there's great food, uh, but the wedding celebration, now that is actually going to be really great. But what we have now doesn't have to be like sad and dour. I mean, maybe sometimes you might feel like we're getting gold feet 
cold feet, we want to do a runner. And that's why we have other people around us to keep us grounded, to be like, no, you're doing this thing, you're going through with it. And sometimes we are truly living in the present, excited to live in the moment as we look forward to what tomorrow will bring. There's no room for dour religion here. Even in Jesus in his death is talking about how amazing it's going to be when one day all things will be together as it's meant to be. And if we're bored, we're completely missing it. Now, um, here's what I would probably be thinking if I was in your spot. Like, Greg, you're American, you're overselling it. Or uh, you're getting a little bit too excited, um, as I often do all the time. Um, or, uh, Greg, that's what Jesus says, but like, my life doesn't look like that. Uh, or maybe you feel guilty because you don't feel like, oh, my life isn't a party. Um, and and uh, Or maybe you just are tired of feeling that kind of guilt. Or maybe you're just kind of tired and maybe you kind of feel like you can't be bothered either way. Um, well, I think we can all feel under it. I know I feel like that. So if that's where you are, if, if it's like, yeah, I know that's how it should be. I'm just, man, I just, just can't, I'm just not there. Um, if that's where you are, if that connects it all, you know, let me tell you a brief story about a musical scale. I promise this won't get too nerdy. I will actually have to, I'll play the guitar in a second. If, I don't know if that's a problem for you audio people. Um, sorry, Michael, I forgot to ask you ahead of time. If I break it, uh, it's not my fault. Uh, <laughs> So, um, actually, let me play first. I would like to play uh, what you will all know as a normal um, uh, major scale. Let's turn them all up. All at, all at 11. Um, there we go. So that's a, everyone knows that scale. You could probably sing it all. We could all, the faso, la, whatever it goes. Um, I obviously can't do that. <laughs> but the, um, uh, the reason why that is a, such a dominant sound, the reason why we know that all is because it came from, uh, it didn't come from, but the Greeks used it, and the Greeks were a dominant political force. So the, the, that major scale is the sound of like politics and sound working together over, like, dominating the Western world. Um, it's a sound that the powerful Greeks used. The major scale, it's also called the Ionian mode. Um, so the Greeks were really good at taking over lots of people. They had a massive empire. Uh, one of the peoples they took over was a kingdom in present-day Turkey called Phrygia. The Phrygians had a really strong culture, but they got taken over by the Greeks, like lots of other people. Now, what kind of music did they make while they were taken over by the Greeks? It actually sounds a little bit different. Let's see if I can actually play it here. So that sounds a little bit different, doesn't it? A little bit exotic, Ooh, a little bit interesting. Uh, the reason why I think, sorry, that's all I have to do. I should have brought my own guitar for that. Um, the, uh, the reason why one sounds more interesting and exotic and one sounds more plain and I guess strong or powerful would be the way, is because generally, like, persecuted people create the most exciting art. Like, the downtrodden always have a lot more to say than the people who are in power and have everything good for themselves. I mean, beauty often comes from the broken places. How did jazz and blues come to be in America? Like, people were human slaves. And out of that came, like, this amazing music that is something that's purely American, partly to America's shame in some ways, the reason why it was created. I think the same is true for the church. When the church recognizes our marginal status, when the church doesn't search after power, but instead searches after beauty, 
But that's when the church really lives out what it means to be the church. And we can say that as a church, like as a group of us, we can say it also in our individual lives. So if you're not feeling it, I think that's fine. Like that's totally fine. Bring that to, bring that to God. It, like more than half the Psalms are all about that. God, I know you say you're amazing. I feel like this. Or your people are like this. What's the deal? Fix me, fix the situation. That's, like, that's the, the majority of the Psalms that we have. So almost every single Psalm resonates with that. The worst thing you can do if you're not feeling with it is to continue along that cold path of indifference. And that, through that, you will either become a snob or a terrorist, as the disciples were, as Judas was. But we as a church, we're called to resonate with the beauty of the Lord. People should hear it, but others can't hear it we can't resonate with it if we aren't tuned into it ourselves first. And this requires nothing less than the work of God in our lives. And that means being present with Jesus together. And I think the best example of this truth of beauty coming from brokenness is the death of Jesus, isn't it? Is there anything more horrible and more broken, more downtrodden and more beautiful at the same time? And there's nothing more beautiful in our world than how God used his glory for our good. If Jesus has given his life in exchange for years, you have the spirit of God inside you. Your, uh, the spirit is always at work recreating you into a work of art, a thing of beauty. And Jesus gave his all for that reason. And only for Jesus's work can the spirit reside in us. We can be like the woman in the first story who gave what was costly. She took her time. She was present there, not just physically, but she was mentally present. And she was motivated by love. And the Holy Spirit enables us in this. And what Jesus did around 2,000 years ago, telling people to uh, eat a drink from this cup and eat this bread, and we continue to do today, to do today, because we're prone to forget. We need to remember. And as we do this, we pray that our lives will reflect this wasteful worship that we're called to as a church. So if Jesus has given his life to you, this table's for you. This is a table that Jesus hosts. You don't need to be a member of Redeemer for that reason. But if you haven't yet embraced the beauty of Jesus in your life, this is not for you. So please don't come up. So like Jesus and his disciples, um, we'll sing a song together. Actually, we'll sing three. We'll do them better. Um, uh, and as we come up, we'll take a piece of bread, gluten-free on one side, and dip it into the wine or the juice. And as we come up, let's uh, bring with us two things as we come up to this table. Um, let's bring our brokenness and let's bring our thankfulness. When we realize how much of our life is spent giving our all to so many things other than Jesus, we can bring that to him and ask him to change us. And as we continue to understand how amazing it was for him to give his life to us, we can respond in thankfulness and in joy. Because Jesus gave his all to us, we get to give our all to him. That's the best kind of life we can live. And that works its way out in all the different particular ways he's called us to. Now, he doesn't want us to live like that so we would pay him back. That's not how it works, because we can't. And in fact, he tells us don't. But we do that because we're overcome with a new love that overtakes everything else in our lives. Jesus tells us the same thing today as disciples today, as he told his disciples so many years ago. This body is my blood. This cup is the cup of the new covenant. 
and until Jesus comes back and changes everything, uh, we wait until all things are new. Let me pray.